2: If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com/slash host.
3: A weathered trunk at the heart of a confounding historical mystery. This could be the find of the century: a set of bricks that stands between a band of prisoners and their freedom. It was just a hellhole. And a human scalp that tells a tale of breathtaking bravery. He realizes that in all likelihood he's going to be killed. I'm Don Wildman. Join me on a journey across the United States as we go deep into the vaults of the nation's most revered institutions. Unearthing wondrous treasures from the past. Extraordinary artifacts and bizarre relics each with a shocking story to tell and a secret to be revealed These are the Mysteries at the Museum In the heart of Oak Ridge, Tennessee at the American Museum of Science and Energy hands-on exhibits offer instruction in the more whimsical side of science But beyond the whispering dish lightning ball And other hair raising displays, there's one artifact that speaks of the darker side of scientific discovery.
4: It's about 10 feet tall, it's made of steel, has some copper and some
3: graphite. This machine was designed over half a century ago. But as historian Ray Smith can attest, its dated appearance belies its modern day significance. What is this machine? And what part did it play in an unlikely prophecy of urbanization and Armageddon? 1900, farmer John Hendricks is living happily with his wife and four children on his land in Bear Creek Valley, Tennessee. But one day, disaster strikes. Their two-year-old daughter, Ethel, contracts diphtheria and dies. Devastated by the loss, The grieving mother gathers the rest of her children and flees, leaving John behind. John was so distraught,
4: he prayed to God, wanting to know why this is happening to him. Heard a loud voice during one of those prayers that said, if you'll go sleep on the ground for 40
3: nights, you'll learn the future of this place. Hendricks heeds the call. Bracing for the chill of the coming winter, he finds a spot in the woods where he sleeps. For 39 nights, he endures the winter cold. Then, after the 40th night of his sojourn, Hendricks claims to have received a startling message. When John was
4: sleeping on the ground, he had visions. He saw a great factory built in Bear Creek Valley where he was sleeping, and he was told that it would help
3: win the greatest war that there would ever be. And what he envisioned next is completely shocking. He sees the Earth shake in an enormous explosion. Upon waking, Hendricks is convinced that his vision is true, and quickly returns home to tell his neighbors his astonishing tale. But to those who listen, his stories sound like the ravings of a madman. There were no cities close. To think that there
4: would be a factory in Bear Creek Valley, that was astounding. People did
3: not believe what John was telling them. But the farmer never wavers in his conviction. In 1908, Hendricks, now known as the local eccentric, remarries and lives out his days preaching his astonishing tale to anyone who will listen. And as fate will have it, John Hendricks never finds out if his predictions will be fulfilled. He dies of tuberculosis in 1915. Then, nearly three decades later, in 1942, as the Second World War is raging, Hendricks's aging relatives receive an ominous warning from the government.
4: They got a letter from the government telling them that they had 20 days to get off of their property and to find another place to live.
3: Hundreds of other families in the valley received the same message. 3,000 people had to move within a matter of weeks. Then, seemingly overnight, under the cloak of high security, a massive city is built on the same location John Hendricks had predicted would one day be a huge metropolis. There were
4: 75,000 people living in the city of Oak Ridge, fifth-largest city
3: in the state of Tennessee, and it wasn't on a map anywhere. But Hendricks didn't just dream about the city. He also dreamt of a factory that would somehow end a terrible war. And by 1945, it seems this part of his vision has also materialized. Many residents of the new city are indeed working in a newly built factory, a factory containing machines called calutrons. There were
4: 22,000 people working on these calutrons 24 hours a day.
3: Once they were turned on, they didn't turn them off. One such calutron is housed at the American Museum of Science and Energy. To the people working with these machines, their function was top secret. Until one auspicious day. On August 6th, 1945... A mushroom cloud erupts in the sky above the Japanese city of Hiroshima. The Allied forces have dropped the world's first atomic bomb, known as Little Boy.
4: The newspapers released that day said that all of that material needed for that atomic bomb had come from Oak Ridge. Now That was the first
3: time these people knew what they were doing. As part of what was known as the Manhattan Project, the Calutron's role was to separate the uranium needed for the atomic bomb. And just as John Hendricks predicted 40 years earlier, this catastrophic event ultimately leads to the end of World War II.
4: I think John Hendricks would have been as amazed as anyone else. He did realize that it would help win the greatest war there would ever be, but I don't think even he could have envisioned the atomic bomb.
3: Finally recognized for his ominous dream, Hendrix is heralded by locals as the prophet of Oak Ridge. And today, this calutron still stands at the American Museum of Science and Energy as a silent witness to the destructive power of science and one man's far-reaching, prophetic vision. Situated near the center of the nation, Omaha, Nebraska was once known as the Gateway to the West. And today, at the Omaha Public Library, tucked away behind the archives and genealogy records, is an artifact that tells a ghastly tale from this state's frontier past. It weighs
1: approximately seven, eight ounces. It's a very
3: ethereal, very light in color, a very unique item. Library director Gary Wosden has seen visitors completely mesmerized by this gruesome object. Most people wonder why such a thing even exists.
1: It is a little on the creepy side and catches people off guard. This
3: remnant of hair and flesh tells the grisly tale of one man's unimaginable courage in the face of death. What is this bizarre-looking artifact? And to whom did it once belong? 1867, Omaha, Nebraska. The Union Pacific is rapidly expanding railroad and telegraph lines from the Midwest to the Pacific coast. But this expansion is met with great resistance.
1: There was a lot of hostility between the Native American tribes and railroads during this time period. The Cheyenne tribe saw the
3: encroachment and building of this railroad as a declaration of war. And on the front lines of this conflict is William Thompson, a British man in search of frontier adventure. Thompson's task was to
1: ensure that these telegraph lines were in good working condition at all times. It was incredibly important
3: uh, and vital to the functioning railroad. On August 6th, Thompson and five other men are assigned to repair a broken telegraph line in Plum Creek, a territory 200 miles west of Omaha. They jump onto a handcart and head out of town. After hours of travel as they near Plum Creek, the men are suddenly and violently thrown from the cart. It appears the tracks have been sabotaged. They're ambushed by a group of
1: approximately 25 Cheyenne tribesmen on horseback. It's a pretty chaotic scene.
3: Thompson is thrown to the ground. As he lies helpless, one of the Cheyenne warriors approaches him in search of a victory prize.
1: Thompson decides that his best course of action is to pretend to be dead. He's grabbed by the hair. The Cheyenne tribesman takes his knife, inserting his dagger just under the hairline, and proceeds to
3: cut off his scalp. Thompson realizes that if he moves an inch or makes a sound, he will surely be killed. But can he endure this agony and survive?
5: It's 1867. In the midst
3: of an ambush by Cheyenne tribesmen, rail worker William Thompson feigns death. But when a warrior begins to scalp him, Thompson realizes his only hope is to remain entirely silent and still. Can he survive this harrowing ordeal?
1: Unbeknownst to the tribesmen, Thompson is alive. To be able to refrain from opening his eyes or crying out, or even to fight back, shows a real strength of will on his part.
3: Finally, the warrior completes the gruesome task and walks away.
1: When he finally felt it was safe to get up, he's able to stagger to his feet.
3: In the blazing heat, a dazed Thompson scans the horizon. His companions are all dead or long gone. Then an object on the ground catches
1: his eye. As Thompson reaches down to his surprise, he discovers that it's the scalp that was just recently removed from his head.
3: It seems his attacker dropped the prize as he rode off. Nearly two days later, a beleaguered Thompson returns to Omaha, where a doctor attempts to reattach his scalp. But his sun-battered wound is too dry for it to take hold. Determined to keep it one way or another, Thompson makes a rather odd decision to have his reclaimed scalp tanned. Within weeks, Thompson heads back to England with his preserved scalp in tow. There, he travels the land educating his countrymen on the cultures and customs of the American frontier.
1: Thompson takes his scalp with him wherever he goes and takes great delight in sharing his story in pubs, in programs, and showing the scalp at the
3: end as a big reveal. Audiences are gripped by the bizarre totem and the grisly tale of a distant land. And before his death, Thompson offers his scalp to his doctor in Nebraska as a souvenir of this singular event in Cornhusker State history.
1: Thompson's survival, as far as we know, is the only reported account of a man
3: surviving being scalped here in the state. The legendary artifact has since been donated to the Omaha Public Library, where it's been preserved for over 100 years. Today, it serves as a reminder of Nebraska's wild past and of the courageous man who was once scalped and lived to tell the tale. Straddling the desolate border of California and Nevada is Death Valley National Park, an arid stretch of sand and stone marked by an unforgiving climate and sweeping majestic landscapes. On the eastern edge of this over 3 million acre preserve is the Furnace Creek Visitor Center, where park ranger and curator Greg Cox safeguards one of the most intriguing artifacts salvaged from the surrounding wilderness.
6: This particular object is three feet by another foot and a half. Uh, It's made of wood with uh, metal trimming. Uh, There's a really corroded padlock also on the front of it.
3: But it's what's hidden
6: inside
3: that continues to fascinate and confound historians. So what did this weathered chest once contain? And how did its discovery spark one of Death Valley's most compelling mysteries? It's 1849. The California Gold Rush is in full swing. Throngs of people make the rigorous cross-country journey to the Sacramento Valley, eager to capitalize on the abundance of newly discovered riches. On April 5th, a group of 36 men, including one named William Robinson, join this massive migration westward. They
0: call themselves the Jayhawkers. The Jayhawkers were a a group of young men from Illinois who decided to set out together for the gold fields. They had the shared desire to take advantage of what they saw as a unique moment in world history.
3: Over the course of the next six months, the pioneers followed the Oregon Trail across the Great Plains before dropping down to the Great Salt Lake. But by the time the Jayhawkers reached the lake in October, winter weather is looming in the Sierra Nevadas, making a direct trek through the established mountain pass and into
5: California
3: impossible. But luckily, the men have heard a tale of a largely unexplored route leading through the treacherous heart of the desert. It's a shortcut that could shave 500 miles off their journey.
0: The lure of the gold was strong enough to make an incredibly dangerous shortcut Seem reasonable. In
3: early November, the group makes the fateful decision to take the virtually unknown Walker's Cutoff. But it's not long before the Jayhawkers realize the error of their ways.
0: Wintering in the desert means in the day the sun is incredibly harsh, and then freezing temperatures at night. There's no obvious food supply, water holes, where they find them are very sparse. It was literally a hell on earth to them.
3: With the feeling of their impending demise looming, the desperate pioneers give these torturous lowlands a fitting moniker.
0: They understandably name this place Death Valley.
3: Finally, on January 28, 1850, after months of near starvation and dehydration, the beleaguered men reach water. But in a bizarre twist of fate, salvation quickly turns to tragedy for Jayhawker William Robinson.
0: William Robinson makes it through the desert track only to die from consuming too much water after the extreme effects of dehydration. The demise
3: of William Robinson becomes a mere footnote in the story of the Jayhawker's incredible expedition. But nearly 150 years later, his name would be thrust into the national spotlight and become the subject of a baffling historical mystery. November 22, 1998, Death Valley National Park. An amateur archaeologist named Jerry Freeman is retracing the roots of pioneers who made their way west to California during the
0: 1849 gold rush. Clambering along a rocky trail, He discovers a small cave and notices an object in the back. It's a trunk.
3: It's the same trunk now housed at the Furnace Creek Visitor
0: Center. Inside the trunk, he finds a fairly odd collection of things. Among the items are two ceramic bowls, two photographs, a letter, and a manifest that was labeled Property Manifest of William Robinson, second day of the Lord's year, 1850.
3: Freeman seems to have stumbled upon an historical goldmine, the last possessions of ill-fated jayhawker William Robinson.
0: A find of a trunk intact that was a time capsule of an important event is actually quite rare. This is, he thinks, the find of the century.
3: But little does Jerry Freeman know, his unprecedented discovery will ignite a firestorm of controversy It's November 22nd, 1998. A man named Jerry Freeman has just unearthed a weathered trunk in a cave in Death Valley, California. The objects inside appear to have once belonged to an early pioneer who died in a legendary cross-country expedition in 1850. But is the trunk all it seems to be? Excited by his discovery, Freeman takes the trunk home. And on January 1st, 1999, he goes public with his monumental find. The story makes national headlines. But not everyone is thrilled
0: about the attention. The Park Service is reacting to requests from the media about the authenticity of this trunk. Under
3: pressure from park authorities, Freeman turns the trunk over to Death Valley officials who arrange for a team of specialists to authenticate the artifacts. But an initial examination produces some curious results. First, experts point to the trunk's manifest, which contains the word grub stake. It's a term used by miners in the late 19th century to describe profit sharing in their potential gold finds, and one that would have been unknown to William Robinson, who died on January 28, 1850. The phrase grubstake wasn't used until 1856. A careful study of the trunk's most fragile object contains a strange anachronism.
6: On the back of this bowl, we have a stamp that says Made in Germany. That is an obvious problem with this artifact here, since the unified Germany didn't exist until 1871. But perhaps the most dubious distinction can be found in the trunk itself. In the trunk here, along the lip, there's evidence of 20th century polymers used in adhesives, modern-day adhesives. With a handful of
3: spurious findings, experts are left with only one conclusion. It was, in fact, a hoax. So if it wasn't Robinson, who did leave the old chest and why? Suspicion immediately falls on the
6: one responsible for the discovery,
3: Jerry Freeman.
6: He always maintained that he had never seen that trunk before finding it in the cave.
3: Historians, however, remain skeptical. And when Freeman passes away in 2001, it seems the truth about William Robinson's Death Valley trunk goes with him.
6: We still do not know who actually put the trunk there, and there's never been any evidence proving any uh, one individual did it.
3: But today, this trunk and its phony contents remain housed at the Furnace Creek Visitor Center, a reminder of a fabled journey that spawned an enduring desert mystery. The village of Point Pleasant, West Virginia, sits at the confluence of the Ohio and Kanawha Rivers. Its charming main street evokes the classic feel of small-town America but is also the site of a rather unusual attraction. This 12-foot-tall figure, crafted from stainless steel, looms over a small park commemorating a series of strange events that first terrorized area residents nearly 50 years ago. Just down the street, Jeff Walmsley runs a small museum filled with files, newspaper clippings, and evidence, all tied to a mystery that some say remains unsolved.
7: I personally have always been intrigued, since I grew up here in Point
3: Pleasant, as to what people were seeing. What is this menacing creature? November 15th, 1966, Point Pleasant, West Virginia. A young couple hangs out at a desolate spot known as the TNT area, a decommissioned World War II era ammunitions depot. The TNT area was sort of like a lover's lane. But at 11.30 p.m., the couple realizes they are not alone. They spotted what they thought was a
7: man standing in the road. They noticed two distinct red eyes about the size of baseballs, two inches apart,
3: and wings wrapped around its back. Just as suddenly as the creature appeared before them, it vanishes. The terrified couple heads to town, and when they tell the police their story, they are met with disbelief. That same evening, over 90 miles away in Salem, West Virginia, a man named Newell Partridge has an unsettling experience.
7: He was watching TV. All of a sudden, the TV started making a very high-pitched noise. As he looked out the back window, he saw what he described as red
3: lights. This strange apparition also disappears. And after news of two similar sightings nearly 100 miles apart hits the local news, hundreds of reports about a terrifying creature with wings and glowing red eyes come pouring in from across the region.
7: The credibility of the story is solid because you know so many people were
3: describing the same thing. The monster's nocturnal habits and bug-like eyes earn it a nickname. A local
7: reporter investigating
3: the story uh, dubbed this creature Mothman. And as the hysteria surrounding the Mothman builds, people begin attributing a series of disturbing events to this mysterious creature.
7: Farmers begin to talk about mutilated cattle. Uh, some of their livestock was uh, disappearing
3: in response, concerned citizens armed themselves. It was almost like a hunt for Frankenstein. They were
7: all out looking for it. Everybody wanted to get a, you know, a shot at it. So
3: what is the Mothman? 1966, Point Pleasant, West Virginia. Hundreds of local residents report seeing a terrifying creature with man-like features, red eyes, and massive wings. So what is this strange monster that people call the Mothman? Some residents think that the Mothman sightings are just a case of imaginations run wild, fueled by mass hysteria. But others believe that its origins can be traced to the abandoned TNT area, where the Mothman was first spotted.
7: The TNT area became contaminated from some of the chemicals and explosives that were manufactured there during World War II. This would be a perfect environment for the Mothman.
3: Then, as the mystery grows, in December of 1966, a local farmer named Ace Henry hears a strange noise coming from his barn.
7: Ace quickly grabs his rifle, runs out to the barn to
3: investigate. There, he discovers a pair of large, glowing eyes. He immediately takes aim and fires.
7: He hears something fall to the floor in the
3: barn. Ace Henry approaches wondering if he's slain the infamous Mothman. But he soon realizes this is no monster.
7: In reality, it is a large
3: white barn owl. This owl, now on display at the Mothman Museum, leads some to believe that the glowing red circles they saw were just the light reflecting off of the owl's large eyes and many believe the case is finally closed. But other residents are not convinced.
7: The Mothman sightings went on for almost a year and a half at at a very steady pace. Even in the 70s and 80s, you know, there's some some very reliable sources who've reported uh, uh, some strange things.
3: Eventually, Point Pleasant embraces the mysterious creature that put it on the map and in 2003 erects this 12-foot-tall stainless steel statue. And ever since opening his museum two years later, Jeff Wamsley has continued his quest for the truth.
7: I'll keep researching, trying to find the piece of the puzzle of the Mothman mystery, and,
3: and maybe one day I'll come up with the answer. In the meantime, this giant Mothman statue looks out over downtown Point Pleasant, where it reminds visitors and residents alike that a strange and terrifying creature may still be out there. In the heart of Manhattan, overlooking Central Park is the Big Apple's oldest museum. Founded in 1804, the New York Historical Society showcases objects that celebrate the city's dynamic past. Among its 1.6 million holdings, are George Washington's camp bed from Valley Forge, a lottery wheel used to draft soldiers during the Civil War, and a fire truck door from 9-11. But there is one seemingly ordinary relic here that could easily be overlooked.
8: The artifact, I would say, is approximately about six inches long, made of black leather, bound together with brownish cotton laces. And they weigh about a pound.
3: These shoes might be small, but their diminutive size belies the scale of the story they tell. Curator Valerie Paley acknowledges that they are the remnants of an event that is seared into the city's memory. They bore
8: witness to the worst disaster in the city of New York until September
3: 11, 2001. So what monumental catastrophe did these shoes endure? And could it have been avoided? June 15th, 1904, Manhattan. Captain William Van Shake stands aboard the General Slocum, a passenger ferry that he has commanded for the past 13 years. On this day, his orders are to shuttle church members to Long Island for their annual picnic. And at about 9 a.m., he lowers the gangplanks.
8: There were 1,300 people Estimated that actually boarded the boat. Everyone was in a festive mood. Children were running around, and it was great fun.
3: But just a half hour into the cruise, the playful atmosphere is shattered by a terrified voice.
8: Someone on board the Slocum saw some smoke and yelled fire.
3: As passengers begin to panic, crew members rush to the water hose on deck But the moment they open the valve, it bursts under pressure, leaving them helpless to combat the flames.
8: The fire began to rage, and pandemonium ensued. The scene is one of a total catastrophe.
3: People screaming, people praying. The captain scrambles to devise a game plan, while deckhands distribute life jackets to the crowd. Little do they know, The jackets are worthless.
8: One by one, people would jump into the water and just drop like lead balloons because the
3: life vests were rotten and uh, really unusable. The remaining passengers on board take matters into their own hands and attempt to dislodge the six emergency lifeboats, but to no avail.
8: They were chained into place and could not be torn away from their tethers.
3: Captain Van Shake decides the only hope for saving the passengers is to get the General Slocum to shore. But the closest land on the river's Bronx side is lined with highly flammable lumber yards and oil refineries. If the Slocum were to land there, it would only compound the disaster. Instead, Captain Van Shake heads at top speed to a little-known piece of land called North Brother Island that sits in the middle of the East River. But can he make it there before it's too late? It's 1904. In New York's East River, the passenger steamship General Slocum is on fire. Desperate to save over 1,300 men, women, and children, Captain William Van Shaik speeds toward a small nearby island. But can he make it there in time? Just before reaching the shores of North Brother Island, the Slocum stops in its tracks. Then the hull breaks apart, and the ship sinks in shallow water. Rescuers rush to the scene and work furiously to pull survivors to the water's edge. Although some are saved, many more do not make it.
8: Of the 1,300 people who were aboard the Slocum, about 1,021 perished.
3: Some of the dead are only identifiable by the garments they are wearing. Like these shoes that were worn by a little girl who died along with hundreds of other children. In the aftermath of a tragedy, people are outraged by the senseless loss of life. There was a
8: large public outcry to get to the heart of what caused this disaster to happen.
3: The Coast Guard launches an investigation. Scouring the wreckage, they discover the fire started in the lamp room, and that a carelessly tossed match was the likely culprit. And because of poorly maintained equipment, the crew's attempts to quell the blaze were in vain. The firehouses
8: were made out of a canvas that was uh, rotting. The life preservers were made of cork. So old it had disintegrated and turned to powder.
3: But the Coast Guard reserves its harshest judgment for Captain Van Sheik. They conclude that his decision to drive full speed ahead to North Brother Island played a crucial part in the ship's demise. Rather than saving the vessel, it only fanned the flames of the inferno, destroying the structure of the boat and with it countless innocent lives. Over 100 years later, at the New York Historical Society, these child shoes serve as a poignant memorial to one of the deadliest maritime tragedies in American history. From iron and steel to jazz and blues, the industrial and cultural foundations of America's crossroads are showcased at the Chicago History Museum. But among the old rail cars and political ephemera are three cratered objects that upon first glance seem like ordinary construction material.
9: They are made of red clay. They're about three to five pounds each. And they're somewhat irregular in shape, mostly because of wear and tear over the years.
3: According to curator Libby Mahoney, these damaged blocks once served to support a notorious building far from this Midwestern metropolis. So what infamous institution did these three bricks come from? And what role did they play in a daring scheme devised by two men who risked their lives for freedom? 1863. The Civil War is entering its third year of bloody conflict, with no end in sight. Countless numbers of soldiers continue to be struck down on the battlefield, while thousands of others are captured and confined to the nearly 150 prisoner of war camps. These makeshift jails are notorious for their squalor, disease, and death. Among the worst is a converted tobacco warehouse in the Confederate capital of Richmond, Virginia, called Libby Prison.
9: Libby Prison housed about 1,200 Union Army officers. It was overcrowded, very dirty, sanitation was terrible, and they had to sleep on the ground, as many as 500 in one large room together. It was just a hellhole.
3: In September of 1863, Union officer Colonel Thomas Rose arrives at Libby Prison and quickly strikes up a friendship with inmate Major A.G. Hamilton. Unwilling to founder in the pestilent lockup, the two men immediately begin planning a way out, but quickly realize an escape from the tightly guarded prison won't be so easy. So the two officers hatch an ambitious scheme.
9: They realize that the only way out is going to be for them to dig their way out of the prison.
3: Rose and Hamilton immediately set to work, searching for a place to start digging. And in November, they find one.
9: In the kitchen is a brick fireplace, and they realize that they can start to remove the bricks from that fireplace and drop down into the cellar. Then they can start to dig their way out of the prison.
3: On December 19th, Rose and Hamilton sneak into the kitchen to begin their excavation.
9: They chip out the mortar, remove the brick. Then they return all the bricks to the wall so that no one can see what they're doing.
3: Bricks like these, now on display at the Chicago History Museum. Finally, after 11 nights of work, the officers break through into the cellar. To complete their escape, The two men must dig a 50-foot tunnel underneath the prison to an adjacent shed where they can slip away undetected. But such a formidable task will require some help. So Rose and Hamilton enlist the assistance of 13 of their most trusted fellow inmates.
9: It was very difficult working in the dark with the rats crawling all over you. They didn't have much oxygen down there. They didn't have tools to really dig, they didn't have any way of really measuring progress.
3: Finally, after more than a month of work, Colonel Thomas Rose breaks through a densely packed dirt floor and finds himself in the small shed outside the prison grounds. The tunnel is complete.
9: They went back to the prison, and they alerted their group. It was a total of 30 who were going to escape that night.
3: But will the soldiers make it out alive? It's 1864, Richmond, Virginia. Union officers Thomas Rose and A.G. Hamilton are attempting to break out of a Confederate prison. And they've just completed work on a 50-foot tunnel that leads outside of prison grounds. So will the inmates make it out alive, or will they be caught? At 7 p.m., Rose and Hamilton covertly lead their co-conspirators down through the kitchen fireplace and into the cellar. One by one, the men shimmy their way through the dark, dank tunnel for the last time and emerge in the neighboring warehouse.
9: They were able to slip away undetected, just as they had planned.
3: The men are finally free. But Rose, Hamilton, and their 28 cohorts aren't the only ones to make a run for it.
9: Word got out that there was an escape route and more men rushed down there and and out to freedom.
3: 109 men escaped that night in what would become one of the largest prison breaks in American history. The next morning, when the daily headcount comes up short, prison officials immediately launch a massive manhunt for the Union fugitives.
9: Of the 109 men who escaped that night, 59 make their way to safety, two drown, and the rest are captured and brought back to Libby Prison.
3: Among those recaptured is Thomas Rose. A.G. Hamilton, however, successfully makes it to the Union lines.
9: The prisoners who were able to escape to the north did tell others about the conditions in the camp, and That whole issue became part of this really rising concern and frustration about the war. Spurred on by these reports,
3: the Union Army mounts a massive strike into Virginia in May of 1864. This relentless onslaught of some 100,000 troops turns the tide of the war, leading the South to surrender less than a year later. When the dust finally settles after the war's end in 1865... Upwards of 30,000 Union soldiers and 26,000 Confederate troops died in POW camps during the conflict. And in 1888, 23 years after the United States is reunited, Libby Prison is disassembled brick by brick and shipped to Chicago, where it's reopened as a Civil War museum. This structure is torn down in 1982, And these three bricks are donated to the Chicago History Museum, where they remain today. A commemoration of the Civil War's most daring prison escape. From a great escape to a tragic shipwreck. A severed scalp to a catastrophic prophecy. I'm Don Wildman, and these are the Mysteries at the Museum.